Let Them Lead is a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. Your host is John Bacon, author of the book, Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team, which led to this podcast. On Let Them Lead, John talks to remarkable leaders from every field imaginable. Automotive, computers, food service, media, education, and athletics, just to name a few. And they share their hard-won wisdom, amazing stories, and a few laughs. You'll also learn a few things you can use tomorrow, and things you can think about the rest of your life. John always finishes with three takeaways and a discussion of their favorite teacher. In the words of John's fifth grade teacher, Mr. Puddock, it's fast, it's fun, and we get it done. So please join us for an entertaining and inspiring discussion. You'll be glad you did. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please feel free to leave your comments about any and all of the podcast episodes. And by all means, spread the word. That's how the word gets spread. And now here's our latest episode of Let Them Lead, presented by your host, John U. Bacon. Welcome back for another edition of Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. I'm John U. Bacon, the author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team, and no, we're not making that up. My guest today will be a lot of fun, Dr. Jim Barahal, who has had basically two full-time careers in one lifetime, and both are worthy of our discussion uh, about leadership, of course. He went to the University of Michigan and graduated in 1974 with a degree in science, and then went on to Michigan Medical School, graduating in, se- in 1978. From there, he became a hotshot in the healthcare profession, as well as the CEO and president of the Honolulu Marathon. So without further ado, Dr. Jim Barahal. Jim, how you doing, sir? Doing great, John. Great to hear your voice. Loved your book, by the way. I, being a very bad youth uh, uh, sports <laughs> coach, uh, could, could relate to all aspects of your book. Well, you've been perhaps that, but I'm sure you're too modest. However, you're a great director of a marathon, a major marathon, as well as, of course, a healthcare system. We'll get into that shortly. So first, tell us about your background, how you got to the University of Michigan, and how running played a role in your life early on. Well, I found myself uh, uh, freshman year at the University of Michigan. You know, I played high school sports, had never run, uh, and I was at Markley dorm, and I don't know why it was like October or something, November. And I just decided my dad had jogged at a time where this, this 1970, no one ran in those days unless guys were competitive runners. And I decided I'd take a, a run. Don't know why. Figured I'd run to the Michigan Union and back from Markley and got to the middle of the diag. And I was cooked, man. I mean, I was, <laughs> I was bent over and I kind of finished the jog to the Union and I said, wow, this is amazing. I'm this out of shape. And um, from that point on, I, uh, I started running. And nobody was running, as I said, in those days, except guys on the team, really. And just gradually did it, usually in the evening. And, you know, that to me was like a really important moment in my life uh, for what the running gave me uh, on so many levels. Uh, um, that's, that's where it started. Just decided uh, one day to put on a pair of running shoes and go out and do it. and and Man, that changed everything for me. Think about those moments. One of my big theories that I stress here in the podcast is that individuals matter and moments matter. It's not all just an ice, you know, ice flow that comes in and goes out and changes things. These moments matter. And that one moment sticks out in your mind. And for you guys not familiar with Michigan's campus, uh, from Markley to the Union might be a mile, Jim, I think. And maybe. You, yeah, maybe. maybe. And you're a serious yeah. high school Down athlete. Hill. Downhill. <laughs> from down there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Downhill, nicely paved. There are no issues here. No traffic to speak of. Yes, that's you've, you've built a strong case. Um, so that got your attention. You decide, okay, this is important to me. I need to get back in shape. So instead of playing your other high school sports, um, you became a runner. Well, I wasn't good enough to, to play those sports at University of Michigan, uh, John. I mean, maybe maybe at a smaller school, but uh, that wasn't something you even thought about uh, then. I mean, Michigan athletics then and now, it's that's big-time stuff. And certainly uh, not going to play baseball or basketball there. It wasn't that good. Uh, the running to me, uh, like I say, it worked on a lot of levels for me. I think the main level, kind of looking back, but I think I understood it intuitively at the time, it gave me control of my own destiny, my own health, my own discipline, like a lot of 
you know, like a lot of high school athletes, you know, the older I get, the better I was. And I think, <laughs> I think a lot of us think, you know, maybe if this coach had given me more of a chance or I had talent that wasn't uh, recognized, you know, I was better than the coach thought I was. Probably none of that is true. But I realized immediately with running that here I had something very objective, very controlled by me, my workouts. Uh, eventually, when I started running more and timing myself, you know, the clock don't lie, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, they say in basketball, you know, ball don't lie, but in, in running really, the clock doesn't lie. And I, I just, I just felt that for the first time I had control of myself athletically, uh, health wise and discipline wise, which is something that I, I probably sorely lacked, kind of, you know, kind of drifted through high school. I, mean, I was a pretty good student and got to University of Michigan and saw lots of different levels of discipline in terms of studying and who was focused and who wasn't. And I think inadvertently that first step I took uh, put me on a path that, uh, uh, that led to, to probably all the good things in my life. That's pretty amazing. The power of running is quite tremendous. I've encountered it myself, as you know, and uh, in odd ways perhaps, but uh, you control it yourself, obviously completely. You can do it whenever and wherever you want. Almost no other sport can claim that. You can run with other people in a group or a pair or by yourself. So in many ways, it is the ideal exercise, of course. And your dad, as you point out, he was running even before Frank Shorter, of course, won the 72 Munich Olympics, which naturally set off the whole thing. But uh, there you are undergraduate and you're pursuing, of course, medical school as an undergraduate. Um, that is a very stressful thing. And certainly it is at Michigan where the competition is cutthroat. Did running help you manage that stress? Totally. Uh, totally. Um, uh, I remember my, my junior year, I got a stress fracture and, um, and, and that, uh, gave me a lot of time actually took up the guitar then actually, which became another thing that I ended up doing for a quite a long time. But I, the, the funny thing about the stress, John, is I, I would say this for many years. I would always say, I don't have any stress. So, yes, obviously it was managing the stress, but it would manage it in such a way that I wasn't even aware of the stress. It just became so ingrained in what I did that uh, it, it just uh, became a day-to-day day -day thing uh, uh, for a very long time. And uh, another thing that happened my my junior year, someone moved in across the hall from me, and he was training for the Boston Marathon a guy named Peter Burns. And um, that's what really got me thinking, wow, because the Boston Marathon was the only race then that got publicity. It was like, it was almost like an oddball thing, like the, like the CBS Evening News and that kind of thing. There were very few news outlets then. They'd always have a little, little bit about the Boston Marathon and they seemed like oddballs. I thought my dad was a little odd for jogging, but the marathon uh, seemed un un unattainable and, Peter was training for the Boston Marathon, and they had qualifying times then. We're pretty stiff, like two. It was like two fifty or something, and um, so I started running with him. And all my first long, longer runs—the first one four miles, the second one eight miles, and twelve miles—all were done with Peter. He was such an amazing influence uh, on me. And I think setting out that goal to run a marathon, and then the Boston Marathon uh, became such a part of my life and kept me focused and disciplined and. Uh, probably to this day. I knew of some of your ra uh, running mentors, of course. I did not know about Peter Burns. Again, my theory that individuals matter and moments matter. If Peter Burns had not happened to move in across the hall from you, who knows how things turn out, perhaps differently than they have. And now that you're a leader, of course, in the marathon world, you also met uh, three other prominent runners on campus. Jonathan Cross, still a close friend of yours. Uh, oh. Greg Meyer, the Boston Marathon champion in 1983. And, of course, Ron Warhurst, the crazy, uh, belovedly crazy, I should say, uh, coach of those teams for almost 40 years at the University of Michigan cross country. Um, and he, of course, had won two national titles at Western Michigan. He's one of the podcast guests, by the way, if you want to scroll back, as is Greg Meyer. So what did meeting those three guys do for you? Yeah, that's an interesting story. Is uh, I had, uh, I, you know, I was just running every day. I used to run the same loops, like a seven-mile loop. And you know, what I learned from that is the, the main thing uh, in running, but I think in most things in life, John, uh, you don't have to have like incredible superstar talent. You have to stay consistent. And I was certainly that, you know, consistent to the point of boring in terms of the running. But they say like in running, you need to, to see if you, you know, if you have any ability or whatever, you need to do it 18 months without really getting injured. And so 
because I was, you know, just doing my own runs and coaching myself and how I feel, uh, I got in better and better shape and started thinking. I, I ran, uh, first time I, I stepped on a track, I ran the inter, an intramural mile. I did a lot of intramural sports at Michigan. And I noticed there was a guy on the track, he had a Mansfield relay shirt. And I knew enough about sports, uh, high school sports, to know that was like a big race in Michigan, right? The Mansfield relay. It was in Ohio, actually. So I figured I'll just follow this guy because he probably knows what he's doing. I had never been on a track. And I won the race. And, and that was kind of – so as I started running more, I started thinking, you know, I'm really not bad. And one day I was out on the track doing some – just running a little, and I, I saw this long-haired guy that I had recognized uh, from Michigan Track, John Cross, who was, you know, one of the stars of the team, and did some uh, some strides with him. And he gave me a pair of spikes. He took me back to the track tennis building, the old track tennis building there, and um, gave me a pair of spikes. And so we started running together. He, he uh, after his junior year, decided to go to dental school. And so we were training together pretty much every day. And then that summer – we were just out on a run and we went by Huron high where you're, you know, where the worst hockey team uh, <laughs> in America was headquartered. And they had these uh, all comers meets in the summer. And we went by there and John's, you know, John said, why don't we, you know, why don't we jump into that? He decided not to, he didn't feel good in the run. I decided to jump in in a mile and uh, kind of was doing my thing. And, uh, and I was leading, and then the last lap, this guy just went by me while I was like I was standing still. So this was um, this was uh, I was heading into my uh, second year of medical school, and um, and afterward, Ron was there. Ron Warhurst. I had not met him. Of course, John was very close to Ron, and it actually was partially instrumental for Ron getting the Michigan job. So I went over and introduced me to Ronnie, and he said, "Good, you know, good run." And I said, "Not really. I you know kind of just got my butt kicked." And he says, you don't know who that was that beat you, do you? I said, no. He says, Gordon Minty, who had run at Eastern Michigan, was an Irish Olympian. Uh, so so you, Ron – You felt better about all of a sudden, didn't you? I felt a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, Ron said, uh, why don't you come out uh, for the team? Why don't you uh, – and, and uh, I said, I don't have any eligibility. So I, I was already feeling at that point from talking to John that maybe I could keep up with some of these guys. Hmm. And that had been a dream of mine. Uh, still one of my big regrets, actually, John, to not actually get a, a varsity letter at Michigan. Mm. Um, so Ron um, said, why don't you come out and run with the team? And I said, I don't have any eligibility. And he said, doesn't matter. Just come on out on Monday. So, you know, I showed up on Monday and uh, that's how I, funny story, I got there. It's at the U of M golf course where the clubhouse is, right? And I I saw my, I was pretty nervous. I didn't really know if I could run with these guys. And, and John wasn't running with the team then. So I didn't really know anybody other. I just met Ron. And I saw Mike McGuire, uh, who's been the women's coach for forever. He was a, Mike was a great runner. And I saw him standing there and with another guy. And he said, you want to join us? And I said, sure. And they went out, man. And we were going fast. And I'm thinking, I'm hanging on. I'm hanging on. Just hang on. And did about 20 minutes. And we got back to the clubhouse. And I'm thinking, because I knew McGuire was a Big Ten champion. And I'm thinking, man, I just hung with Mike McGuire. And then all of a sudden I see Ron clapping his hands. He goes, okay, guys, let's start the workout. <laughs> I said, Jesus, that was the warm-up. I'm in big trouble here. Of course, I did know at the time that McGuire did everything that fast. Mm. I mean, he says McGuire. So anyways. And by the way, you listeners, uh, uh, Mark, Mike McGuire has been a legendary women's coach at Michigan all these years, decades now. He won the Detroit Free Press Marathon, Marathon, as I recall. So this is not a piker we're talking about. No, Mike was a school record holder. Mike had tremendous talent, had uh, a lot of injuries, um, but uh, amazing guy. And so that was, uh, that was an interesting introduction. And then uh, joined the team for the season and then, you know, went indoors. And for some reason, Greg and I really hit it off. Uh, and, Greg, and, and Greg Meyer was – he was the star of the team. He was uh, – there was a couple of stars, Billy Donikowski, who also ended up running like a two, uh, 209 marathon or something, 210. These guys were really good. Greg was the star of the team, but we hit it off. I think it was humor and kind of mutual respect. I just respected his talent and his ability and his leadership. And uh, so we just became you know good friends and tra tra trained a lot together. 
I know Greg, of course, quite well, thanks in part to you, um, but also my own training for the marathon as well. And uh, Greg, of course, was the 1983 Boston Marathon champion. Having talked to those guys, Jim, they admired you because you were the only medical school because you were the only medical school student they had ever seen. <laughs> those guys, those guys don't run with Olympians. They don't run with Michigan Big Ten champions. So to have you out there while in medical school actually floored them and made them closer to something they wanted to do also, pursue careers like that. So the, the respect certainly was mutual, and that's pretty cool. Um, what did running do for you long-term? You mentioned stress, of course, um, but of course, during medical school as well, and then later on your healthcare profession career. Um, how has running been a part of that? I'll tell you a funny story. We, we, when I first became the head of the marathon, we... Uh, 1987, we, a big part of the marathon, we were just developing the Japanese market. And, and so we had a meeting with our, uh, this Japanese group that was just starting to get involved with the marathon. And it was a really long meeting. I mean, I'm telling you, they, they put out a manual, it was like 57 pages and, um, very organized, very detailed. And I remember John Cross and I were sitting there and it was, it was pretty brutal. And we and I actually passed him a note. I said, I said, we're marathoners. You know, we, <laughs> we're runners. We're marathoners. We can handle this. In other words, they are not going to outlast us. If you get into, if we're going to get into a battle of wills or a battle of endurance, would be more accurate. We're going to win that battle. And I think as you, you know, move on in business and careers and and life and that 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 confidence you get that you're. It's a mental discipline. It's a mental toughness. It's an, a feeling of that you have tremendous endurance, uh, that you can handle adversity. It just, it's just amazing how that is kind of becomes hardwired into you as, as you do that. And uh, I think I remember, you know, talking to Greg when I was running and I had already run the Boston Marathon at that point. And this is ironic, you know, looking back, I ran the Boston Marathon for the first time in um, 1974. And so to, for Greg to, because that wasn't on his radar then. He had been a, a, he had been a steeplechase uh, Big Ten champion and Olympic trials. And I think that was another thing that I'd run a marathon. And don't get me wrong, I couldn't keep up with Greg the, in, in those cross-country workouts on that golf course. I mean, he was, Greg was an amazing runner, Billy, Billy D. Uh, a lot of world-class guys happened to pass through there at the time, but Again, as, as I appreciate you saying there was a mutual respect, and you know these turned into life lifelong friendships. So, but for sure, the running, you know, led me as I got to Hawaii and got me involved in the marathon, and I think helped me to to be successful. You know, for and very fortunate on on a lot of levels. My kid is only six. Your kids are through college, of course. If I had to pick one sport for him to play, right now we're playing baseball and hockey, my two favorites. But I would pick cross country. Because it's the healthiest sport out there, probably. Also, academically, those runners almost always are the best uh, students in school. Because like you said, you have to train very hard when no one's watching. You've got to keep on going. Persistence, as you pointed out early on, beats talent almost every time, as in life. So what great skills somebody learns on a cross-country team, be it high school, college, or even training for the Boston Marathon while in medical school, which is incredible. Um, it is... <laughs> And as you as and you and Jonathan Cross have said, we're marathoners. So you got a 10-hour meeting, you know what to do. I love that. So you transferred all this energy and all this talent to uh, the, you founded Doctors on Call in Hawaii. Tell us about that and tell us how that led to uh, Hawaii Pacific Health. Well, I was, um, I was, I decided as I, when I graduated medical school, I took a little time off, which is another interesting thing. And um, I talked to my dad about that, um, and he he had a great attitude about that. He said, the world can wait another year for you to be a doctor. Uh, and he says, you have your whole life to work, and and after having worked almost a whole life, I, I realized now how, how right he was. He, he had confidence in me that I was disciplined and focused and that I would do something productive. So I, I was actually training a lot that year with John and Billy Donikowski, and I got into some writing and stand-up comedy, and I'm really – I'm really glad I had the opportunity to do that. Uh, I had a dermatology residency lined up, and I decided I would spend a year uh, in Hawaii doing an internship. So that's how I, I came out to Hawaii. And found when I got to Hawaii, the, the running community here was 
that was like a running boom in the late 70s. And the running community, you can imagine Hawaii with the weather, of course. was really, really big. And uh, ran, you know, just entered some races, didn't know anybody. And found that getting my butt kicked by Greg Meyer and Mike McGuire and Bill Donikowski <laughs> and John Cross and those guys, I found out pretty quickly they weren't in Hawaii. <laughs> hey, hey, this is good. This is good. And I, you know, realized from a Hawaii level, I was a good local class runner, and uh, that you know, kind of very local uh, recognition I was getting for running uh, eventually led me into the marathon, but. I was just going to spend a year in Hawaii and go to the dermatology residency and um, decided for some reason that that wasn't what I wanted to do. I, I honestly didn't know what I wanted to do. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but sometimes you just got to follow your own muse or wherever your path is leading to. I liked Hawaii and no, and um, and decided not to do the residency and decided I would start a house call company called Doctors on Call. That's where the name came from. And I would just do house calls. So I, in those days, everybody would set up their own medical practice. So I just dropped a little ad in the paper that said, uh, the Dr. Bearhall is opening his uh, Doctors on Call house calls only. House calls only. And that was in September of 1981. And that um, got some publicity. I did a couple of TV interviews and and I was driving all over the island doing house calls. So that was interesting. And, and, and nobody was doing house calls in 1981, to be clear. No, for a pretty good reason. It's, it's like really hard. <laughs> You're driving That's why. all over. Yeah, it's really, you know. Also, hey, by the way, know, Oahu itself, the, the most popular island, of course, it's still quite spread out. You're driving quite a bit, I bet. Yeah, and I would go anywhere. I had this Fiat convertible that I actually drove from when I left uh, Ann Arbor and drove out to California. And so, yeah, I was living the good life, John. I mean, couldn't, you know, didn't need, you know, in a way it's you know, one thing about like people that have like more degrees and stuff. And I spent that whole time in Ann Arbor. I, I was really fortunate, you know, loved Ann Arbor and Michigan, but to go four and four undergrad in med school, you're still like a college student, you know? Sure. So it's like, it's like an extended adolescence. So, and so I think Hawaii extended that adolescence a little. So I'm, I'm cruising <laughs> around in a convertible and doing house calls. I remember telling a friend of mine, he asked me, like, I said, you know, if I could do, you know, I was doing, I was charging $49. And I said, wow. you know, if I could do like 20 of these a week, you know, I'm good. I'm hanging out on the beach. I'm running. I'm loving life. And uh, uh, eventually, as I said, we took that to uh, uh, 60,000 patients a year. A little and, more. And, yeah, but it wasn't the master plan. The ma you know, the, the master plan was one at a time, you know, enjoy life, do a good job, you know, the house call business. What happened was I started getting calls from one hotel in particular that had the Saudi Arabian uh, royal family was there a lot. They take up two floors and they kept calling me to do the house calls at the hotel. And I realized that maybe this house call business, there's a lot of business in the hotels. So I opened up my first clinic in uh, the summer of 1982, uh, and, and, and so eventually opened up uh, 19 clinics and uh, and sold the Oahu operation. Still have uh, clinics on Maui. So what I learned from that was is that the business that you start out in is very often not the business you end up with, and you have to recognize that. So what started as a house call business became a clinic business uh, that included house calls, but so, you know, fortunately was able to recognize and, you know, flexible enough to see, you know, you know, blow, go where the prevailing winds are blowing. And, um, and the story that, that I, and I actually have a stock certificate that I have on the wall at my house, um, uh, from a company called the American Ice Company, uh, with a very instructive tale. They were one of the 10 largest companies in the United States, like in 1922. Cause you can imagine that ice was a big business, right? Really no, big business. No refrigerators, right refrigerators so they were a huge business and like and the stock the like a stock prospectus from american ice company issued by merrill lynch uh saying although there are electric refrigeration units that have been invented we don't think they'll ever be uh, on a large scale they're too big and too expensive merrill lynch is bullish on ice <laughs> we are and bullish on ice we'll buggy whips Typewriters, yeah. yes. Yeah, we're bullish on ice. And uh, 
And so I, I have that stock certificate in my office at home as a reminder that the American Ice Company did not understand what business they were in. They were not in the ice business. They were in the food preservation business. And since refrigeration was already invented, had they understood their business, uh, just like the steamship companies were not in the steamship business in 1910, they were in the, in the mass transportation business. So failure to understand what business you're in will almost invariably uh, lead you to, to to complete an utter, utter failure. You will go out of business. And so I'm not equating what I was doing with that. But my point was I started as a house call business and pivoted uh, into a clinic business. And then from there, we developed several other business lines. Drug te- We're the largest drug testing business in Hawaii. Uh, I developed the largest telemedicine uh, business in Hawaii now through uh, my uh, affiliation with this large healthcare uh, institution, Y Pacific Health, we've done over 125,000 telemedicine uh, visits since the pandemic began, which is a business I started for them with four smartphones. So again, you have to keep looking at what's going on and pivot because you will end up in a different business. And if you don't, somebody else is going to eat your lunch. Uh, that is hilarious, by the way. Bullish on ice. I'm taking that phrase Bullish with me. Bullish on ice. Don't, don't forget <laughs> that one, kids. Well, look, and you realized early on, you were not in the house call business. You were in the medical care business. And Actually, it, John, what I actually realized, it was I was in the, a service business. I modeled my business. I, once I began working with hotels, I began to see their service model. And, and I decided it was a 24-hour business, which was rough. 24 hours, seven days a week. And I was kind of on my own on this one. Uh, it was it was it was tough, but uh, you know it worked for me at the time. And um, I watched what the hotels were doing. And when I opened my first clinic, I wouldn't hire anybody that ever worked in a hospital. And I wasn't you know I wasn't trying to discriminate. I just felt it was my own sense from having been in hospitals as a medical student and as a resident. I didn't love the, the service delivery, and I felt that for what I was doing, I we were going to try to do something different. So if you'd worked in a hospital, I wasn't going to hire you. It took me about four years before I actually would hire somebody who had worked hmm. in a hospital. And so we developed this service model, which, of course, is everywhere in medicine now. It's all what they call patient-centered and, right. you know, these patient satisfaction surveys and the whole thing. That was unheard of then. So I felt that I was in the service business, and the product I was delivering was healthcare. But that as a differentiator in the marketplace, I felt that the service was a differentiator. And I still say this when people say, well, our hospital is better, our clinic is better. And I said, it it probably is. But I don't know if I can go to a hotel or to a company and say, we treat sore throats better than the guy down the street. <laughs> That's a hard uh, pitch, isn't it? A hard pitch. It may, in fact, be true because, you know, trust me, there's some, there's some schlock out there. But whether that was true or not, it wasn't what... I've come to learn what we would call our unique selling proposition, our USP. What, what is it that we have that somebody else doesn't have? And it's that service, that commitment to ex- excellence, uh, you know, what, you know, which, you know, the University of Michigan has at so many levels. That's what it is. That's what you're selling. And ultimately, you're selling is yourself and your own commitment to that excellence. And so I always tell my kids that, you know, people think they're not selling. Uh, you are but usually you're selling yourself. And then, you know, what we learned from the marathon was we took that into the marathon as I became the, uh, 1987 became the president of that. I'm talking to Jim Barahal, the good doctor and director of the Honolulu Marathon. Incredibly, two jobs in one, two full-time careers, I would say. But uh, to hit upon that for a second, the great premise you have, though, about service being the differentiator, you were decades ahead of the HMOs on this one. And that's why you grew so fast. Well, I had some friends that actually in the 80s that went into HMOs as medical directors and stuff, the early HMOs. And Kaiser was also there at the point. I would say it was the opposite. They're certainly, their whole thing was based on not, on not having service. The whole thing was based on, uh, you know, allocate, you know, allocation of, of, of resources and, you know, you know, managed care which is in about not providing service, not, not making a comment. That's what I'm saying. You, you were ahead of them. That's my point. Yeah, I was going the other direction. Exactly. And we were going to provide a personalized service. <clears throat> and, uh, and then we somehow scaled it to where we got to 60,000. At one point, we were seeing more people than all the emergency rooms on Oahu combined. And, um, and, and when, I look, when I look back on, 
on that as a, as a business and as a service delivery thing. And then also the marathon, which uh, became the largest event in Hawaii and gener generated in my time as CEO, $3 billion in direct spending. I kind of look back because I didn't know anybody in Hawaii when I got here. And so both of these opportunities um, that I had, that I had existed when I got here. So my question to myself, as I look back on it is, how were you able to, to do that? You know, forgetting what we talked about already about discipline and, and that kind of stuff. And I think that's another topic, which is recognizing an opportunity that others don't. So what did I, so why was I able to take these two niches, which is healthcare primarily for visitors, although we do see a lot of local people and the Hanuman Marathon. And the only thing I can figure out is they weren't seen as opportunities by the people who lived here. <laughs> um, that, that, by the way, is a simple bit of genius right there. Um, it's sitting underneath everyone's nose and they don't see it. You have to be an outsider in Hawaii to recognize how fantastic the hotel service is there. I went there for the first time in about 30 years ago in the early 90s. It's already a big deal by then, of course, but I was so struck by the five-star hotels they're putting me up in, thank God, um, by the tremendous service. And they actually seem to enjoy themselves in a way that you don't always see on the mainland. So you took that hotel idea and applied it to healthcare, and it worked. Yeah, what we're talking about. So why didn't they, people here recognize the opportunity? Well, the medical thing at that point, you know, the medical world has opened up a lot, but but I think it was, that was not something that the local doctors were going to do. It was a little beneath them. They certainly weren't going to do house calls, right? And even for a number of years, we still did many, you know, I've done thousands of house calls. So they weren't going to do that kind of delivery that would provide a service to the hotels. And the Hanuma Marathon, you have to, you have to see what running was like in the seventies and into the eighties. And nobody, nobody, uh, foresaw these mega marathons and these huge economic impacts and 40, 50, 60,000 people in these races. It was a nice local race, the Hanuma Marathon for sure in the seventies. So I think these two things were not seen as anything that had any certainly economic value and that people were not going to pursue that. And so, you know, call me dumb or lucky or whatever, you know, whatever it was, uh, I, I did it. And of course, once it's developed, I mean, once in 1995, we became the largest marathon in the world. And I think uh, once the op once it's, you know, it's like any other business or once it's out there in the open, then everybody sees it and then tries to copy it. But the trick is, is, is finding it before it's seen as an opportunity and developing the opportunity. And you don't even know that yourself, quite frankly. You're, it's a little bit like running, John. You know, it starts out where you go, you know, I run to the middle of the diag out of breath. <laughs> and then several years later, I'm running with, you know, Greg Meyer. Uh, you just, it develops. And it's the same thing with an opportunity. You, maybe you have a little sense, but you work day by day and uh, chip away and you grind and you and you take care of the little details, and you know maybe if you're lucky, you find yourself uh, in a place where you know it's not a master plan; it never is. But it's but you know it's it's the little things, and, you, and over time, if you, if you are lucky and work hard, maybe you'll you'll develop something that everybody says, "Aha!" But nobody saw. I did not necessarily think the Hanu Marathon was going to be huge. I did think that it could have could be a lot better. Uh, than a, and bigger. You've already created this health empire, really, 60,000 patients per year, pretty incredible numbers there out of starting out with one, as you pointed out, then 20 a week, et cetera, up to 60,000. Then you get your eye on the Honolulu Marathon. You had run it, I believe, um, and felt that it could be better to the point where finally in 87, you actually take it over. What could be better about it? Why did you take it over? And what was your vision for the marathon? Well, the, the interesting, the, where it really started, because, you know, I became part of the local running scene and then John Cross moved out here. I thought he'd like it. And I knew he would, I knew John would be like the dominant runner uh, in Hawaii if he came out here. Mm -hmm. And you invited so, him anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, so we had a lot of team stuff in those days, but, and so I was asked in 1984 to do the invited runners, such as it was. They had a very limited, almost no budget. And uh, Let's explain what that means, by the way, for the non-runners out there. An invited runner is a hot shot you pay, a professional runner basically, a big name to create more attention for the race, correct? Yeah. So I was invited to do that. The guy who was doing it was a, a physician and a, a, a pretty decent runner. And um, 
I said, I'll do it, but John has to do it with me. I was really busy already. I kind of, and I thought that that'd be better if I had a partner on that one. And then John, of course, had, had been a great runner. I was a huge fan of running and the African runners. And he, he, he worshiped the BB Bikila, the, the first great, the Ethiopian two-time Olympic champion. John was a real, I was more of an all sports guy, but John was, you know, he really loved those runners. And, um, there was a race out here in 1985. There was a, a or 84. There was a national like pro comfort, Dr. Scholes or something. They had like a 10 K series and they had the championship in Hawaii. And, um, and they had a bunch of guys ran sub 30 minutes, a couple guys ran like 28, 30 and stuff like that. And John had picked them up at the airport and um, really took them around great hospitality. And a light went off for me as when I said, you know what, what we thought about running in Hawaii, as far as how fast somebody could go, I realized now was wrong that people said you can't because the course record in Honolulu then was 215.30. Which is much and, lower than Boston, for example. Yeah. And people said you can't run fast here. And we realized because we lived here, I said, no, you can, you can't, you can run faster because these guys just dropped in like uh, Michael Musioki was like a, a Kenyan Olympian had, had gone to Texas El Paso or something then ran like a 2810 and for 10,000. And I'm like, no, you can run faster. You can't train to run faster. <laughs> That's a different thing altogether. So we realized that um, you could actually bring a fast runner here somehow. We didn't quite know how to do it. You know, Greg had just, had just won Boston and we didn't have a budget or anything. And then in 1985, we were doing the invited runners. This guy from Albuquerque named Ibrahim Hussein, uh, who had run at University of New Mexico, he's a Kenyan, had like as a workout had done the 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 Duke something marathon Albuquerque, done like a 225, and he was here on a free trip to Hawaii, and we we went over and met him, and um, became like good friends and. And he was going to run the marathon, and I told him not to. John and I, it was really windy that year. And we said, come back next year. So he was the first guy, really good guy, in our second year that we brought, 1985. And we worked with Adidas. We gave him $2,000. And he just shattered the course record. He ran 211.43 uh, here. Wow. And he was the first Kenyan to win any marathon. Till that point, people thought really? the Kenyans – Yeah. They thought they couldn't run marathons. And then Pat Lynch was <laughs> – Imagine uh, that idea now. Go ahead. Yeah. And Pat Lynch, who was the head of the Boston Marathon then for John Hancock, because we were we became really good friends with – along with Greg and Tony Revis. And Pat would come out here every year. And so he invited Abraham to run Boston. Uh, this would be uh, in 88. And so we all went to Boston together. And, and, and Abraham won New York in 87. And then first African to win New York – and then he ran Boston in 88, first African to win Boston. And this this kind of thing where Ibrahim, he won our, broke our course record twice. He put us on the map. And so we got a uh, reputation as as kind of where we you could develop these future champions. And a that's launch continued. pad. It's a launch pad. Low pressure. Learn how to win. I think, John, this is another thing that was in your book. Uh, learning how to win is really important. Very few people can win a marathon, but if you take a guy like Ibrahim Hussein and we had Cosmos and Deddy who didn't win our race, he actually finished second twice and then won Boston three times. Uh, we've had so many of these guys and we developed the theory and I know Pat agreed with this and other people that in some ways it's better to run Honolulu and win than to maybe go to New York when you're not ready and finish fourth. Uh, even even if your time might be better and you might win a little more money, there's something to be said about learning how to win. And I think that's in other sports, it's in hockey, it's in running, and it's in life too. There's nothing like winning, man. I agree with that so strongly. I didn't quite figure that out until my second year of coaching when I realized, okay, now this is the Heron Hockey team, of course, from Let Them Lead. Uh, now we are good enough to beat almost anyone, not quite there for everybody. But we have to learn how to win one goal games in the last five minutes, and it's a separate skill from hockey. We're good; all the hockey stuff's there. We're in good enough shape. We skate well enough. We know the game; it's no problem. We have not yet learned how to win, how to end up on top when it's close. Ronnie Warhurst, our mutual friend, he says one problem with U.S. track right now: it's all done by times, 
you have to qualify in time and so on. And they don't know how to race. They don't know how to jockey for position, uh, the, the mind games that go on in a long race and so on. And we're kind of losing that in a track point of view. But from a leadership point of view, it doesn't matter. For your medical practice and for your Honolulu Marathon, learning how to win is a separate skill. And your, you know, Abraham included, your hotshot runners learned that at Honolulu and took that with them to New York and Boston. Right, exactly. He knew how to win. So by the time, so he goes to Boston in '88. I'm there with him and John because, uh, you know, I traveled with Abraham for for uh, several years, and so he, so we knew what had happened at Honolulu. He had he ran two eleven forty three, broke the course record by four minutes, but he had come through the half marathon in one o three twenty four. Wow. Okay. Yeah, unbelievable. But then he ran the last ten k in thirty four minutes, which is. You know, for for all of you know, most of us, that's a good 10k, right? But for his last 10k of a marathon, he had really slowed down. So we got to Boston and talked about. It. I said, Abraham, just run the same pace you ran in Honolulu, uh, and it will be because marathons are races of attrition, as you know what Ronnie's talking about. Not if they're paced so much, but if guys, like, you know, Boston doesn't have a pacer, so guys got to figure it out when they're out there. I said, just run the same pace, and guys will start dropping off. And I said, when you get to, to 20 miles, you get to the top of heartbreak. I said, look to your left, look to your right, and look behind you, see who's there, and then deal with it. And that, you know, that's exactly what happened. He went through 103.20. Guys start peeling off. He gets to the top of heartbreak. There's three guys left. And eventually he gets to, including John Tracy, who was this great Irish Olympian, had been the silver medalist in the Olympic marathon in 84. And... Um, and then he gets down to like two miles to go. There's this one other guy. And Abraham, what people didn't know about him was that he had finished second in the NCAA 1,000 meters. So he could run fast. That's pretty good range mm-hmm. for a marathon. Unusual. Unusual. So he got down to Boylston Street. And uh, and we're just watching. I was with Tony Revis. I'd say, when's he going to kick? When's he going to kick? And with about 100 to go, he and he won the race. It was It was really cool. And we knew because Abraham knew how to win. And I think, you know, that's so important. Uh, I remember I was coaching uh, my son's Little League baseball team. And, you know, we weren't very good. I was probably wasn't the greatest coach. And we're losing every game. And I called my dad, who was a psychologist. And he had coached us when I was a kid. And we won a lot. And I said, you know, I don't really know what to do. Does it really matter if we lose every game? You know, we're, you know, we're having fun. You know, we're letting kids play different positions. He goes, you know, he goes, no, it's okay. He said, losing is okay, but losing all the time is not so good. He said, you really should try to figure out how to win a game, which was interesting. He was like a psychologist. It was interesting Hmm. to hear him say that. It wasn't like as long as they're having fun and everybody's participating, that's the important thing. He says, yeah, that's the important thing, but try to figure out how to win a game. (laughs) And and not be city champs. That's not the point. The point is show them what winning looks like and feels like. And I've coached teams like that. When they finally win one, of course, it's as though they won the World Series, as you've probably seen. Yeah, we saw it. We've, so we're like two games left. And, you know, you know how sports goes. Sometimes the ball bounces a certain way, and, and we find ourselves winning. And, and um, the rule in the league was no inning can start after 645. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. So we're winning, and we come off the field, and I look at my – the lead is is – is slipping, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And we come off the field and I look at my watch and it's like 647. So I said, boys, line up and shake hands. We won. Smart and move. The coach, and the coach on the other team, you know, they were actually a good team. And he, they, they went back out onto the field. And I went and said, what are you doing? He goes, uh, he goes I said, it's 647, game's over. And he said, oh, come on. And he said this thing, my wife and I joke about this all the time. He said, let the keikis play. Uh, keiki is a Hawaiian word for kids. Uh-huh. Let the keikis play. And I'm thinking, these keikis are done playing. <laughs> <laughs> my keikis haven't won a game, so we're out. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, so we're lining up to shake hands. <laughs> I love and it. His, his keikis are on the field. Mm-hmm. And uh, they don't. they won't shake our hand. I said, boys, that's... We won. There's a lesson and in I that, too. I that discussion with my dad. I would have let the Cakeys play, and we would have lost probably, and we would have had a season in which we didn't win any games, and I think it was the right decision. And my dad telling me, you know, you know, losing is uh, just as contagious as winning, and sometimes True. There's, nothing, there's nothing you can do about it. But uh, 
it, it's good. It's always good to learn how to win. And you, of course, we can define winning in many different ways, but I, and certainly in life. But I think in this particular situation, the definition was very clear. Win a friggin' baseball game if you can. Well, and there's value in that. There really is. I, I'm not one of these win-at-all-costs kind of coaches. I never was. I don't feel that way now. Um, but I have been on a team, a baseball team, when I was a player where we lost every game. And it's discouraging. Also, you don't know what winning even feels like, what it takes. So that's another problem there. So winning that one game, you know what? I bet you right now, if you asked all those kickies, on your team about that game, they will all remember that game. So your dad, I think, was right. So when you look back at the whole thing, who was your favorite teacher, boss, coach, leader? Oh, that's a good question, John. I think, I think as far as a leader, there's no question that uh, a gentleman named uh, Dr. Richard Kelly, uh, who is a, who's actually the owner of the Outrigger Hotels. His, uh, I know it well, yes. His family started the Outrigger Hotels. He was a physician. Famous, right. Uh, his father, Roy, who I also got to uh, to know very well, I became his personal physician out here and uh, uh, taught me a lot about uh, business and, and life. And so, you know, Richard became a mentor to me. Uh, so he for sure was the most important uh, business person uh, for me. As far as coach, um, you know, the high school experience for me wasn't, you know, wasn't so great. I found it, again, I was probably a punk, to be honest with you, John. I mean, you know, reading, you know, reading your book, you know, you, you have the, you know, the archetypes and, you know, the different personalities on teams. And, you know, I, I found it fascinating how you manage that and, and you know, identified the leaders and, you know, kind of treated everybody, you know, you had a team, but everybody was their own person. Uh I, I just felt frustrated with that. It was probably more me than anybody else. And it was different growing up when I did. We all played all the sports. And as we, we come now, you know, everybody is specializing it's, and starting at a very young age. It's, it's a different kind of thing. I think Ron was a big, was a big influence for me. Ron, War, Ron Warhurst, for sure. Because when I went out with the team, it meant so much to me. Because I dreamed of, like, being on a Michigan team. And, and I can still remember, like, running out to uh, – from – campus out to Huron Hills golf course and run and repeat Hills and Ron Ron would be standing, you know, you come around the circuit and Ron was just so encouraging. And, you know, I wasn't even officially on the team. And then he, uh, he let me run in like the, um, uh, Eastern Michigan Invitational. It wasn't an official meet. Uh, and so, you know, he let me do that. He but you got to wear the block M, didn't you? I did. And, um, and so for Ron to welcome a guy like me, I mean, I had, even if I had been really good, I don't think I would have been a contributor. And the fact is I wasn't even on the team. So so the fact that he welcomed me like that and treated me as, as well as he treated Greg Meyer uh, and just seeing his humor and his personality, but yet, yet his uh, coaching and his tough workouts and just the whole thing made such an impression on me and, and again, led to that lifelong uh, friendship. And I think it's been a huge influence on me that you have to uh, when I would hire doctors, I said this, I tell every doctor the same thing. Don't, don't let our casualness, uh, confuse you with us not caring. <laughs> so Ron I, created a very casual that. atmosphere. Ron created a casual atmosphere, lots of joking, lots mm -hmm. of banter. But let me tell you, at its core, it was dead serious. And, uh, and he developed champions. And I think, but you develop people better in a casual atmosphere, but it can confuse people into thinking, because there are, there are environments and businesses and teams like that where it's just it's completely structureless and there's no accountability. So I think I learned about that from Ron, that you can have accountability and develop uh, greatness while at the same time having great casualness and banter and welcoming everybody, not just the superstars, that everybody's got a role to play. And sometimes the great champion uh, will develop uh, – out of out of nowhere, and maybe it'll be in something completely different. Maybe it won't be as a runner. Look at all the great men around us developed. Well, look at also you with your medical practice as well as your marathon, of course. Um, it's a phrase they now call loose tight management, where you care about some things a great deal, and Ron did certainly, and you don't worry about all the rest. And that's not a bad approach. It tends to work pretty well. If you try to squeeze the balloon in all places at once, I maintain it's going to pop. So everyone needs an outlet. So you need to be relaxed in some things, but also, as you pointed out, very serious about others. So that's a great lesson there. 
um, tying things up, I always have got my three takeaways, as I did with our mutual friends, uh, Greg Meyer and Ronnie Warris. And by the way, I got to say also, Dr. Jim Barahal brings back Mike McGuire, all the guys you mentioned, Mike McGuire, um, Greg Meyer, Ronnie Warhurst, you bring them back for the Honolulu Marathon uh, every December. They really appreciate it. What a great way to give back for those small gestures four, 40, 50 years ago. Pretty incredible. So very cool on that front. Um, I boiled that onto this. I, I've got about six or seven I could have picked in your case. Uh, one of them is stay consistent. It's what marathoning teaches all of us, of course, and that is that consistency will often beat talent. Showing up counts for a lot. Uh, number two, the business you start out in is not always the business you'll end up in. If you don't recognize that, you'll miss the boat. We are bullish, Jim, on ice. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> don't forget that, people. And number three, recognizing a niche where others don't can be a great opportunity. In healthcare on the island, of course, out of, you know, out of towners mainly, out of off the islanders, um, those guys, the Honolulu Marathon, not recognized as a hotshot marathon, a potentially hotshot marathon. You turn your medical practice into the biggest one on the island and the marathon into the biggest one in the world. That's incredible. When no one else saw the potential of those things, they saw those things. They didn't think they're going to be a big deal. So that's pretty cool. And I can't help but a fourth one here, Jim, and that is that learning how to win is a separate skill. And I love that too. So my guest has been Dr. Jim Barahal. Jim, can't thank you enough. So much fun talking to you. And thank you, John. That was great. So many different topics. So you've been listening to Let Them Lead a podcast about the risks and rewards of leadership with your host, John U. Bacon, author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. And my guest has been Dr. Jim Barahal, who not only has started uh, one of the biggest medical practices in Hawaii, but also, of course, the biggest marathon in the world. Jim, a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Or as you would say, mahalo. Thank you. Mahalo, John. been listening to let them lead a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today with your host john u bacon author of let them lead unexpected lessons in leadership from america's worst high school hockey team we hope you enjoyed this episode got a few laughs and picked up some insights you can use tomorrow and think about for years please feel free to leave your comments about any and all of the podcast episodes and by all means spread the word Please join us again for another fun, fast, and fulfilling serving of Let Them Lead.